0: We're here with Kelly Horton. She's been an occupational therapist for over a decade. She's from beyond the book, Therapy Services. And today we welcome Kelly to talk about her occupational therapy career and mental health. Welcome Kelly. Thank
1: you for having me, Carly.
0: You're very welcome. It's lovely to have you. So I'd like to ask you first off, I know occupational therapy differs depending on the occupational therapist. So what's your focus? So I'm actually
1: a mental health care provider as well, which just means that we had to go through um, a registration process and you had to do two years under a psychology or mental health care care provider. So it just gives you a bit more qualification and also we can access mental health care plans, which not all OTs can do through Medicare. So that's a good one to know whether your OT can access both the chronic disease management plan and mental health care plan. But yeah, as you said, OT is such a broad area. You can be a hand therapist working in hospitals, you can be in aged care, private practice, government organizations. For me personally, I am specialised in autism. I have a very special interest in autism as well. And I would say 98%, 95 to 98% of my clients have autism. And then, Obviously, co that come with autism, mental health is a huge focus. Uh, If anything, it's probably more of a focus than the autism diagnosis sometimes, especially at the moment with COVID
0: as well. So yeah, I've got a really, really special interest in mental health and autism. Okay, so talking about autism, I've heard Mm -hmm. you know one person on the spectrum, you know one person on the spectrum. It's so varied and so broad. So could you talk to me about the difference in ability of people that you have on the autism spectrum?
1: Yeah, and I love that saying because, um, you know, you can go to especially school meetings and teachers have said, oh, you know, I've got, I've had students before with autism and this is what I do and it's kind of like that's really good. It's a great foundation. It's great that you've, you know something about autism. It's a good start. But for this person, pretty much you've got to start from scratch again. So it's yeah once you've met one person with autism it doesn't mean that that strategy will work with the next person and it also doesn't mean there's a lot of i guess media and um what people see especially on social media about autism is it hand flapping is it low iq you know it's when you actually look at the diagnosis of autism those Parts are actually comorbidities of autism. So you don't have to have a low IQ to have a diagnosis of autism. Um, Albert Einstein and a lot of CEOs and high-ranking profile people would have autism, uh, whether they openly say it or not. You can be highly intelligent, gifted. Um, You can be in a wheelchair. You You can present in a lot of different ways. But I think it's also important that, a lot of the time especially even when if we talk for funding people will ask what your primary diagnosis is and for a lot of people autism is because it's the one area that impacts their life the most and so people will say oh my child has autism blah blah, blah. but they may not follow up with the other list of six other diagnoses they may also have so yes they have autism and then we go oh They've got autism and they're in a wheelchair, but they may have autism with other diagnoses as well. So it's not that just autism is classified in wheelchair, hand clapping, whatever it is. It can be anything and it can be somebody that's sitting next to you on the bus or the train that looks capable. Um, and then they could, if you started a conversation and they, you found out someone, one of your close friends has autism, you'd be like, really? I didn't know. I didn't see it. And it's also the reason why autism is known as the hidden disability and probably the most frustrating thing in schools and workplaces is trying to get people to implement strategies when they can't physically see what they're trying to address. So when we talk about anxiety, mental health, you you can't physically see it as such. Whereas if I walked into a classroom and I was in a wheelchair, I would say the teacher what adjustments do we need and straight away they're going to look at all the physical aspects of the classroom if i walk in and i say i've got high anxiety well again the level could be different for every person but i don't exactly know what that means for you as an individual because anxiety for every person is different so then the strategies are different so i really like it when people refer to autism as the hidden disability because it just identifies how difficult it can be to understand what's going on for that person and then to find the strategies.
0: So you said comorbidity. So does that mean that they probably have a diagnosis of autism ASD but then they may have clinical anxiety on top of that diagnosed and maybe um, obsessive compulsive disorder? Yeah so
1: you can have those as additional diagnoses. So they could be secondary diagnoses or just you know they're just listed as diagnoses the comorbidities is when you don't meet the criteria so the dsm-5 which is what uh, pediatricians and so forth will use for children when they're trying to diagnose someone or doctors and so forth so they've got strict criteria so to get a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder you have to meet the criteria in the dsm-5 same with autism You have to meet certain criteria. For somebody with autism, they may not meet the criteria as well for OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So they might not meet the criteria to have the diagnosis, but they may have the comorbidities around autism that tick a lot of those boxes in OCD, but they don't actually have the diagnosis. So it might be that I've got autism, but then I've also got the comorbidities of Anxiety, so I don't have necessarily a full diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, but it still impacts me, and it's and comorbidity because it's more negative traits or signs that are impacting the person quite significantly
0: and stopping them from their daily life. Okay, so is that is clear as mud. Yeah, no, that's very good. <laughs> Some people say to me, oh, "I'm a little bit on the spectrum," and. Yeah. I go, really? I've got a really good friend. Both her kids are on the spectrum and I know what she had to go through to get a diagnosis. They had to do sessions with clinical psychologists, um, speech pathologists, psychologists and then get a diagnosis from the paediatrician. So can you be a little bit on the spectrum? I'm going to admit I used
1: to be one of those people. I thought I was doing everyone a good service by saying, oh, everyone's on the spectrum, you're a little bit on the spectrum because I thought I was trying to make it positive. I was trying to make the world think positive about autism and then we can all we're all on the spectrum, but you know, it's whether you get the diagnosis or not. Through all my experience and talking with clients and 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 talking to these young autistics, that's where I, I learned a lot of my my strategies and and support. I was actually doing the complete and utter opposite and it was completely wrong. And it is wrong because if we say that we're all on the spectrum we're taking away from the autistics who either one embrace their autism but also how hard it is for them every single day to wake up and get through their day we're definitely not all on the spectrum i believe that some people may have traits there's a lot of clients have come through our books that didn't get the diagnosis but i would say they definitely almost meet the criteria so that potentially could say, you know, the parent might say, well, oh, they were almost on the spectrum. But, again, I don't think that's the right wording. It's more about they show a lot of signs and traits, but we didn't get the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely don't want to take away and just say a will on the spectrum. And, again, I think, I think people like I was too, we were trying to make it a positive thing,
0: but it really just did a disservice to the autistic community. Yep, thank you Kelly. So we're on Good Health Radio talking to Kelly Horton about occupational therapy and mental health. So Kelly, predominantly you work with young children and adolescents, is that correct?
1: Yes, and I well when I first started, well, as you said at the start, over a decade ago, I obviously had a I had a lot of children in primary school. And a couple of teens and then i've grown with them and they're still clients of mine some of them so add on 10 years and a lot of them are 18 20 and going out getting their licenses and so forth so i guess my specialty has shifted from young children into more teens and adults because i've grown with my caseload and i'm probably known to take on Uh, more teens and young adults now and
0: I'm really enjoying it they're hard they're (laughs) tricky they talk back they're not as compliant but I love it biggest challenges now for your clients during this time of COVID how is that for them
1: it's I've had a mixed bag actually with this um, area it's very different we've had to adjust therapy obviously and even just trying to work through each stage. You know, at the start, I was—I've recently had a baby a few weeks ago, so I was pregnant when it first happened. I sort of pushed through, trying to do the right thing. by clients, seeing them at school, then lockdown or restrictions increased in Melbourne. That first lockdown happened, and no one really knew what what it meant. Some families really completely withdrew and was like, "No, we're cutting off everything." COVID it's the worst thing going around and they were quite scared but that was also an issue that they were cutting off all their therapy supports others embraced it I've been able to engage with new clients and past clients because I've had the flexibility of either not having to travel and being able to fit in more clients at the time but the telehealth online you know with anxiety some of them don't want to use cameras they already think that the intelligent world out there is trying to spy on them and they they have actual fears of it so yeah there's a couple of clients i haven't seen since march but what we have done instead is i've tried to work through the parents whether it's through phone calls or telehealth sessions online with them just so that there is some sort of connection and the client or young person know that i'm still in the background And then trying to be thrown in and out of remote learning in Melbourne. That's been really difficult. So, again, at the start, it was all fun and games. You know, everyone was excited. Well, some of them, that's a lie. Some children hated being remote learning from the start. But a lot of them did enjoy being at home and being in their safe space. And they didn't have to deal with all the social aspects and body language and so forth. And They could mute and turn the cameras off. But I think that whole going back and forth was really difficult in Melbourne for them because they don't manage change as it is is, and this whole COVID situation has turned their routines upside down. So their safe place at the beginning when it was all, oh, this is going to be so much fun, I get to work from home and I'm at home and that's where I love being. But then they realised, oh, hang on a minute, my boundaries aren't there anymore. My safe place has now become my educational or my workplace and I can't manage how to do both in the one area so our therapy goals have changed from putting out I guess spot fires and every day to day to redesigning their whole routine and daily life and then also dealing with the germs and everything else and the government telling them what to do
0: yeah, I can imagine that'd be challenging for adolescents definitely on the spectrum. They have rules, I think. They, they have do. those, they have those understandings of the world and how the world works, and then it changes. And as you said, they don't like change. So then how do they accommodate that within themselves? I know my one of my good friends, she's got two kids on the spectrum as I said before. And the son has loved lockdown, best thing in the world, got himself shut in his room, does all his work, you know, Xbox with his friends after school, just perfect. The daughter, she's on the spectrum too, she's younger. No, nah, no, not coping, not in the slightest. So it's different for every kid really, isn't it?
1: And that's a perfect example of they've both got the same diagnoses but present completely different. And for your friend's son, who you first spoke about, I'm almost plan. I would almost be planning double sessions for when school goes back because they really haven't been at school. Probably, what is it since the end of term two? Mm. I know they went back for three weeks, but some people chose not to go back, or it was just so short that kids haven't even registered it trying to get them back out of that, I'm locked in my house, and locked in my bedroom because I've been told to, it's gonna be a really difficult task in term four to break if we do go back to face-to-face learning. And if we don't, transition is just gonna be the main focus next year, full stop, because yeah, we're gonna to have to change everything again and what they've got used to and what they feel safe with is gonna be no longer and gonna be ripped away from them. They're, they're gonna take it very literal. And then for your friend's daughter, yeah, that's it's the opposite. She could be really down and almost depressed because they haven't got that interaction and that social connection. And I know people say, oh, well, hang on, if she's got autism, why aren't she so social? Because I thought people with, with autism wouldn't be social and they withdraw. And it's to get the diagnosis of autism, it's that you have difficulties with uh, social skills, not that you don't have them. So when you have difficulties with social skills, it could be at one end where you lack the skill and you do withdraw and you want to be on your own and you don't enjoy other humans' connections or interactions, whereas you can still have difficulty with social interactions. On the other end, where you, it almost becomes an obsession and you're completely inappropriate because every single person, even... The mailman is your best friend, so yeah, a lot of that's I guess that's something that we've just brought up. There's one misconception of autism is that they're not, they don't have emotions or empathy, or they don't want friends, or they're not social. It's no, no, no. They're just difficult in those areas, and you can be at either extreme
0: too. Yeah, I think her daughter is so empathetic. I would say over-empathetic with animals, yeah. with objects, with everything she feels so deeply. And she's an amazing human being because of that. But at the same time, socially, any little thing can trigger her off. I I hate myself. I'm the worst person in the world. And she's she's only tiny. She's in grade three. And it's such a struggle for her most days to work through all of those challenges so and I think that's important that it's not a lack of it's the difficulty
1: and the the impact on their daily life if it stops them from doing things whether it's a lack of or too much obsession there either way it's stopping her from doing things on a daily basis and that's where they've got the diagnosis from not just lack of
0: Yep. So as an OT, you help these kids through mental health challenges, you help them at school to access the curriculum. Like what, what would your daily sort of job be with these kids?
1: Well, outside of COVID, uh, a lot of our sessions we try to do in the home or the education uh, setting because um, I've set up my business as an outreach business so that we're actually addressing issues and concerns in the environment that they find difficult because in a clinic where it's controlled and safe it can be a lot actually can be a lot harder to work on at times whereas I get to see all the impacts so what the client or the parent might report to me I might actually see more more impacts in the environment so yeah you go in with a plan Um, especially with teenagers, you always have some sort of plan in your head of this is how we're going to follow on for last session and this is our next step up in that skill area. But pretty much depending on what you're walking into, your plan goes out the door most days. (laughs) Especially if you see them after a recess or a lunch break and they've had uh, social issues with their peers and you're trying to explain to them, one, you're calming them down so it's all about regulation for the first half of the session and then you start talking about why it happened. And then hopefully there's not a meltdown in between those discussions and you can start building on some skills but look i think it's really important to note though when we come in we're yes we're doing therapy and we're working in the moment with these children and teenagers but the handover to the rest of the team or to the parents depending on the age of the client is most important because whatever we're doing in the session they need to be practicing that Every day, um, every week, depending on what you're doing. And if they're not practicing and implementing it on a regular basis, change is going to be either a lot slower or not there. So it's not just about fixing things in therapy, I guess. It's also about educating and training people that are around this client every day so that these strategies are implemented constantly.
0: And schools have been quite open to all that too, which has been fantastic. So long-term change needs to be implemented, and a total different, obviously, mindset probably for the carers, the parents, the teachers. Yeah, and you're working with families that are they're on the brink
1: of breakdown themselves. And here I am going, oh, and try and do this every day, and they're going, yeah, right, I can't even do what I'm doing right now. So it's, it's understanding the mental health of the entire team and family as well, and all the dynamics. So very. Yes, you've got a client, but it's, it's not as simple as that either.
0: We're on Good Health Radio with Kelly Horton talking about occupational therapy and mental health. So, Kel, I wanted to ask you, my friend, I've talked about her all the time, she was struggling with the school, I know, because girls are not as diagnosed as, as boys yeah. for many reasons, but she was struggling with them understanding the needs of her daughter And I know that her OT was phenomenal and supported her in advocating for her child. So you support the whole team literally in working out what's best for that child and maybe even supporting them through advocacy. Is that correct?
1: Yes, and I probably become a little bit bossy,
0: I guess. (laughs) I demand
1: in a nice way to try and attend those PSGs or SSGs, whatever the school like to call them. Because I think it's really important to when teachers are giving feedback to parents about the academic side of it, if I'm in one of those meetings, I can then say, okay, this is great. We're talking about the academic side, but what's stopping them or what's excelling them and how can we manage this and trying to look again at the entire environment and the person and making sure that they are addressing the mental health and autism side of the person as well. Because, especially for girls, as you said, we call it masking. They're very good at masking or camouflaging, especially their social behaviour. And then they're seen as neurotypical, but in actual fact, they could be copying or they've just learnt certain behaviours and gestures and scripts, but they actually don't have the foundation skills underneath. So if that situation, slightly changes or they weren't coping as well the next day all of a sudden we will see this meltdown and you the teachers will go but they managed yesterday why not today so it's, it's about providing education to the teachers as well and it's and even i'll say in all my meetings i don't know everything like this person yes i know a lot about autism but i'm still learning every week working with this client because that person has to teach us too so yeah, it's setting up positive opportunities for everyone to have a say. I, I call it negotiation, but really, it's manipulation from my end to make <laughs> sure that my client looked after. But I think yeah, school school's really really hard for these kids, and it only gets harder in high school as well because it gets more rigid with timetables and so forth. So even just setting up a safe person in the school and having one person communicate majority of the time with my client, that can be life changing for them for the year. So yeah, I think it's it's important to have your therapy team not only talking to each other as professionals, but making sure that schools or kinders or workplaces have access to the therapy team too. And yeah, I think NDIS
0: has opened up those opportunities because of the funding for families too. So hopefully we see that more often soon. So you're supported, so you're under NDIS. People can use NDIS to pay for your services?
1: Yeah, so um, we're not a registered NDIA provider as such, but which basically in layman's terms means we can't see people that have NDIA managed plans, but we can see people that are plan-managed and self-managed with their NDIS plans. Yes. And, and And part of the registration is to make sure that People are staying within those NDIS guidelines and costings. But what a lot of people may not realise is even as unregistered providers, we still have to adhere to code of conducts and all those regimes as well. And the costs are all below NDIS.
0: So Kelly, can I get to something personal now? So I know that you recently, just as you said, had your beautiful baby girl and during the time of COVID. So congratulations. Thank you. And you've got Will as well. And Will, obviously you had him before even COVID came about. So can you just, from your perspective, give us some indication of how you went with pregnancy and birth during COVID? I can't imagine how that was. Yeah, so Will's four years old now, so he was well and truly nowhere near
1: COVID. And then I found out I was pregnant cut weekend last year. So the start of my pregnancy, COVID wasn't really known around Victoria. So I started my pregnancy um, and all my appointments with my OB as normal. And then when COVID hit, at the start, just like with the schools, it was it was a little bit unknown. And my OB was very casual. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. It's all great. Then masks came in from her end. Then I was told I should pull my will out of childcare because of the risk. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And then I turned up to one. I remember turning up to one appointment and my obstetrician was in full, like almost surgical scrubs. Her shoes were covered. She had a mask on, she had the face shield on, she had goggles on, she had a hairnet on. And I walked in and masks weren't mandatory then. So I didn't have a mask on and I'm thinking, hang on, if you're looking like that, what am I meant to be doing? So it was very unknown for, and I think it still is, around pregnant women and whether it could be passed through to the baby and blah, blah, blah. So then my obstetrician tried to say, look, all going well, we probably don't need to see you as often, which my GP wasn't wrapped about. But they were trying again, they were trying to do the right thing by not having us in there as often because of risk. But I had a few complications. So I went from I won't see you for seven weeks to I saw her every week anyway. Then you had the hospital and I was being monitored towards the end of my pregnancy twice a week. We were getting our temperatures checked and asked all the questions. I've been overseas. We've got a cold. I'd be really interested to know, I mean, I, I wasn't sick at the time, but if I was sick, Were they going to send me home and not monitor my baby? I don't know. I never actually asked them what the outcome would be. I know when I went in for one monitoring, there was a mum. She had a temperature. She'd just given birth and she had a temperature, but they knew it was mastitis. So It was an infection, so that has the temperature. But they couldn't risk it, so they actually sent her off the maternity ward and put her upstairs isolated. Little Miss Chloe came a month early, so she should have been born in the second lockdown, but she was born between the two lockdowns when we had a couple of weeks there. They had just started to relax some of the restrictions. So I went from giving birth to Will and having friends and family visit me during the day and keeping me occupied and saying and and being an extra pair of hands to Scott was my nominated visitor and then we were allowed to have one other visitor, which I was lucky the day that I had her, it changed at lunchtime and I had Chloe at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. That Will was allowed to be the second visitor. Otherwise, it was no children under 16 which I don't know how I would have coped. I, my heart goes out to the families at the moment that have a second child that, one, the child doesn't see their mum for five up to five days and, two, the mum doesn't see this other child. But, yeah, it was it was hard. We You weren't really allowed to walk around the unit, uh, the maternity ward. You could go to the kitchen um, and that was about it and then you're pretty much in your room the whole time. Uh, We weren't allowed to leave. We weren't allowed to see anyone. My Will's birthday was around the time that Chloe was born. So I was very nervous about not being able to see him for his birthday. And yeah, it was really strict. At the time, again, with Chloe, masks weren't mandatory. So we didn't have, when we went out, because I ended up having to have emergency seizure. So in fear, that was very normal to what I had with Will. But I understand now, even the mums in labour, you're you're confined to the birthing suite. You're not, even the dad's not allowed to leave to go to buy snacks or anything. You've got to be really well prepared um, and lots of mask wearing and so forth. But it was very isolating in the hospital and I actually I was a bit naughty. I checked myself out a day early because I, I was going insane. <laughs> but then, yeah, we came out and Chloe got to meet my parents, my nan and my grandma only within the first week just because... They were available and I was available, but she still hasn't met my husband's parents because they live three hours away. And it, wasn't, it was a week and a half after she was born, we started getting more restrictions in place and another lockdown, and they weren't allowed to come to Melbourne because Melbourne was blacklisted. And still now, they're up, they're in stage three, but we're in stage four, and they still haven't met her, and she's nine, ten weeks old. Aww. So it's it's quite hard. Um, can't see none of my friends. So I didn't see a lot of people from March. So a lot of my friends only saw me pregnant once, which is very different. They have no one, none of my friends have really met Chloe. I think maybe four of them have, that's it. So Chloe doesn't know we have friends. (laughs) (laughs) She just thinks the world revolves around my parents and my husband and I and my son. So it's positive in terms of I had a winter baby and she hasn't got sick and I'm not worried about anyone coming around with a cold like I was with Will. He was born in winter
0: too. She's protected from germs, I guess, but it's been very, very isolating. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing your story. Thank you for your expertise on autism and your time. If anyone wants to get in touch with Kelly, she is an occupational therapist. It is www.beyondthebooktherapy.com. She has Insta and Facegram as Instagram and Facebook as well, mix that together. That's www.beyondthebooktherapy.com. Thank you so much, Kelly, for your time. No worries. Awesome. You're on Good Health Radio with Kylie Roger and we'll be back after this break.